Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Grace. It's some of the best guidance I've ever received. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. In fact, it's such good counsel, Debbie and I would urge every one of you to do that, if you possibly can. We've been trying to practice it faithfully for years for our own souls, for our own spiritual health. Divert daily. That means some kind of quiet devotional time with God where you pray and really seek Him. It can be in the morning, midday, evening, combination, doesn't matter. But divert daily. Every single day, make that North Star connection, that celestial fix with the one who is really Lord of your life. Withdraw weekly. We should observe Sabbath every single week. I'm convinced one of the things that fuels so many anxiety issues, so much fear, so much personal turmoil, even health complications in people, is simply a lack of Sabbath. If we just practiced that principle, what a difference it would make. So Debbie and I attempt to do that every week, to find a day when we just kind of recalibrate, don't work, and just pull back from the rat race, and then abandon annually. Just if you can, I know it's not possible for everyone, but if you can find a time every year when you could just say, we're going to forget it all and just get away. We were privileged just to have two weeks of vacation now, and I had one week of intensive study in preparation for upcoming sermon series, and I'm excited about those. So we feel very blessed to have had those two weeks of vacation and that week of study leave. But as always, every time we come back, we're, we're always saying we're so glad to be back at Grace Fellowship, and we really, really are. By the way, uh, as you can imagine, when you're disconnecting like that and abandoning things, can you imagine how many emails arrived during that time? Literally hundreds, I kid you not, literally hundreds. So if yours is one of those and it's been waiting a while, God bless your heart. Wow, have mercy and thank you in advance for your patience. Uh, my assistant and I will hope to get to those as soon as we can. Let me ask you, what is your boldness quotient? How bold are you as a Christian? I ask you that because we live in a time when many Christians' confidence is being shaken. It's as though we become uncertain and not sure that we can afford to be bold and confident in days like this. There's all kinds of things going on internationally. We live in a day when the greatest refugee crisis, many would say, in history is going on with millions of people displaced. And it's not just in Syria. Through terrorist groups like ISIS and others, there are refugees all over the world, people who've been driven from their homes. It's turbulent, turbulent times. And many people today have their eyes on North Korea. If you've been reading the stories, they're testing missiles, short range, medium range, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
In fact, on July the 4th, many believe that day was strategically chosen to kind of give an in-your-face, perhaps, to the U.S. An intercontinental ballistic missile was launched, and the idea is one that could reach the U.S. armed with nuclear warheads. That's not alarmism. That's just the word out there of what's happening. And many people believe that, that perhaps there should be there could be a flashpoint of, of international conflict due to this. But we don't need to even look outside of the borders of our own country to see turbulent times, do we? I don't think we do. Many are fearful of the economy. And even though the stock market has really been doing well recently, many are predicting that we are overdue for a serious correction in the market. In essence, that means our economy would be in a recession, and again, we would have some tougher times economically where there wouldn't be quite so much prosperity. Nobody really knows, but historically, those things tend to happen in cycles, about every seven to ten years. And then there's the issues of morality, right? We look all around and we see lifestyles that uh, just 40 or 50 years ago would have been considered unthinkable are now mainstream and applauded. Lying, cheating, stealing is just commonplace in the business world. It's just what you have to do to get an edge. And virtually anything goes in an effort to enhance the bottom line. I don't focus much on these things personally. I like to focus on the positive, but you've got to admit, we live in some pretty intriguing days. The times are turbulent. In the old play, Green Pastures, the angel, angel of the Lord returns to heaven with a report after having surveyed conditions on earth. And he says, Lord, everything nailed down is coming loose. And that kind of describes our day. It's as though the foundations are shaking. And so that's why I begin a brief sermon series today that will take us all the way through the month of August, where we're going to look at three of my favorite chapters in Scripture. There's 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5. Years ago, I made the effort to commit these to memory. I reflect on them every single week. And I have received so much encouragement from these three chapters, it's astounding. And so I want to kind of unfold them for you, unpack them verse by verse, and what we're going to see is that words like confident, competent, and bold appear over and over again in these chapters. And I pray that whatever your Christian life, whatever your spiritual journey is looking like, that you will gain encouragement, boldness, competence, confidence through these chapters. So let's dive in today. And by the way, I, I might add that we could really have as sort of a theme verse for the whole series, chapter 3, verse 12. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, just for definitions, boldness here does not mean obnoxiousness. Amen? Isn't that good? 
Boldness here does not mean zeal without knowledge. Boldness that these chapters describe is born out of a humble trust in God. It's a confidence that flows out of that authentic relationship with the Lord as we trust in him. So as we kick this off today, and I, I love these three chapters, I think they actually pick up steam as they go, and we're going to crescendo five weekends from now, or actually four weekends from now, I guess it is, when we look at that last part of chapter five, that's kind of a highlight, I believe. But today I want us to look at some reasons why we can keep calm and stay confident even during turbulent times. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot some thoughts down. First of all, we can be bold and confident because our confidence comes from trusting in Christ, not ourselves, for daily strength. If your Bible is open there to chapter 3, or maybe you want to follow along on the screens, let's start in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Then Paul says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, what is he saying here? In the first century, when this was written, people didn't have social security numbers. They didn't have credit cards or a driver's license. And so what they carried was letters of recommendation from important people or people in authority. And so it was sealed with that person's stamp, and you could show that if anybody questioned you, and it gave you instant credibility in their eyes because you had been approved by them. Paul's saying, look, I don't need that. I don't need endorsement from other people to prove that I represent Jesus. You're enough. You're my endorsement. You're the proof. You're the letter of recommendation. Your very relationship with the Lord is proof that God is working through me. Now, up here on this little table, I don't think I've ever shown these publicly, but just so you know, I didn't get them out of a Sears Roebuck catalog or something. I've got three diplomas up here. I don't think I've ever shown these. In fact, I haven't looked at them for years. This one is a college diploma, 128 credit hours, and it's a Bachelor of Arts in religion. Doesn't that sound great? Don't you wish you had that? A Bachelor of Arts in religion? This represents thousands of hours of study, hundreds of papers of one size or another written and it represents a lot of toil. I'm so glad God allowed me to be able to, to earn this Bachelor of Arts degree. And with some people, I guess that's important. It, it gives a sense of credibility. But here's another one I pulled out of the mothballs here. This one says Master of Divinity. Woo! Does that sound impressive or what? That one was earned in 1992. This one was completed in 1985. This, it represents 91 master's level credit hours, one of the longer master's degrees in the world, 
master divinity. It's very thorough, involves Greek and Hebrew and all kinds of theology, as well as practical things like pastoral counseling and stuff like that, preaching. And uh, I'm so glad that I, I had the ability, God gave me the ability to earn this. It, it kind of feels good, actually, to know that you've jumped through some hoops, huh? And then there's another one here. <laughs> wow. Pulled this out of the dust pile. This is a doctor of ministry degree. That one was finished in 85. This was finished in 94. I defended my dissertation in the fall of 1993 before the academic panel of inquisition. Fun experience, let me tell you. And you know what? The weird thing about these is that although they represent thousands of hours of work and tens of thousands of dollars of money invested to pay for the tuition and so on, I don't even hang these things on my wall. Now, there's nothing wrong if you do. In fact, it's kind of comforting to me to go to a medical doctor and see a degree there on the wall. I, I kind of, if I walk in an, attorney's in an attorney's office, it's kind of good to see that doctrine of jurisprudence there, you know, under glass. That gives a level of comfort, I suppose. But I, I, I don't even hang these on the wall. I may someday, but right now they just sit tucked away in a file drawer. You, you know why? Because many of you have heard me preach and teach. You've watched my life up close, even under a microscope, for years now, even decades, some of you. And I either have credibility with you or I don't. And I'm so thankful that you don't judge me by a piece of paper. I really, really appreciate that. Paul says, look, I don't need a letter of endorsement from someone else to show that I'm qualified or legitimate as a minister. You are proof that the Lord has worked through my life. He goes on in verse 4, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. You see what he's doing? He's almost straining to make sure they get it. Our strength comes from trust in God, not in ourselves. Now, I stress that because it's so different than the message you'll get in the world. The world will teach you, look. You've got to believe in yourself, in your own ability. You've got to build up your own self-esteem. Trust your own instincts. You can do anything you set your mind to. You can be anything you want to be. That's the message I hear over and over again in the world. Years ago, when Allie and Chase, our children, were really young, I think the number one children's program at the time was called Blue's Clues. Mr. Rogers had been dethroned. He was no longer your neighbor at that point. And the, the, the really catchy, uh, popular show was Blue's Clues. And Steve, in Blue's Clues, sang this little song. If we use our minds and take a step at a time, we can do anything we want to do. Use our minds, take a step at a time. We can do anything we want to do. That's a cute little children's song. And would you agree with me that we want our children to have appropriate levels of confidence? I hope you would agree with that. We want them to dream. We want them to stretch. We want them to be all God designed them to be. 
absolutely. That's a good thing. But to tell a child you can do anything you want to do, you could be anything you want to be, is just not truthful. If Shaquille O'Neal's mother had told him that he could be up at Saratoga today as a prize-winning jockey riding a horse, that would not have been truthful. Or if Pat Day's father, Pat Day, by the way, is one of the most celebrated jockeys in all of racing history, winner of the Kentucky Derby and many other top races, barely over five feet tall, a little bit over 100 pounds. If his dad had said, son, one day you're going to be a dominating center in the NBA. Sorry, that's just not truthful. I'll tell you what is true. You can be anything God wants you to be. Now, that is a message that we need to get across. There's a big difference between those messages. And I want to tell you today that you're going to face some things in life that I hope you understand your own power can't solve. When your health breaks, when your older children rebel, your mate has an affair, your stock portfolio tanks, your company collapses, your infant dies, all the self-confidence in the world is not sufficient. Your source of strength had better be something more than yourself. And the Christian can be confident and bold in uncertain times because our trust is in Christ. Listen to how the psalmist, David, writes it in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Oh, I love his brimming confidence, don't you? Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Why? Because the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's given me the strength. Imagine a 10-year-old boy, the first week of school, he goes to the bus stop, and he gets bullied every single day by a much larger 12-year-old boy. And he just dreads it every day. I mean, it is miserable. This guy's just humiliating him every single day. He doesn't even want to go to school. But then one day, this boy's 200-pound, power-lifting father walks with him to the bus stop. And he has no fear. Why? Because his father's at his side. Paul, while going through the most unimaginable, horrific circumstances you can even possibly fathom, he's in a dungeon. It's rat infested, it stinks, the food is lousy, the company is horrible. And as he languishes in that Mamertine dungeon, he writes these words to his young disciple, Timothy. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But catch this next line. By the way, when he talks about his first defense, he's talking about standing before the Roman authorities, many believe even before Caesar himself and making a defense for his own life and ministry. But notice this line, but the Lord stood at my side 
and gave me strength. Friend, I want to tell you, you're going to face some things, maybe even this week, where you need to be reminded of that, that the Lord is at your side. You've got that family situation going on. You don't feel adequate. Guess what? You're not. But if the Lord is at your side, you are. Your finances are in turmoil. You don't know what the answer is. Guess what? There may not be a good earthly answer, but if the Lord is at your side, you can make it. Maybe you've gotten a bad medical report. And humanly speaking, it just doesn't look good. But like Paul, in the very face of death even, you can say, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. See, here's the deal before we quickly move on to this next important point and reason we can have confidence. You see, the Christian life is full of a number of paradoxes. We die in order to live. We give to receive. We lose our life in order to find it. You see all these paradoxes? Just full of paradoxes like that. We surrender in order to gain victory. But here's one of the paradoxes we need to desperately understand. We acknowledge our inadequacy in order to have God's confidence. And how desperately we need that in these turbulent times. But there's a second thing I want us to see here right out of this passage. And it begins with verse 6. Our confidence comes from relying on grace, not law, for eternal salvation. Grace, not law. Look with me at verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, For the letter kills, he's talking about the letter of the law, he's talking about keeping the Old Testament law, it kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jerry Seinfeld, the popular comedian, said that he saw a list one day of mankind's greatest fears. He was shocked. He said death was number three on the list. He said, you know what was number one? The fear of public speaking. Seinfeld said, I don't believe that. He said, if that's true, at the average funeral, that means that most people would rather be the corpse than the person giving the eulogy. And I want you to know, I don't believe that either. I believe the fear of death plagues people. I'm reading an intriguing book right now, really enjoying it. It's called The President's Club. Inside the World's Most Exclusive Fraternity. It's a fun book because it's meticulously researched and it tells about all these things that you'll never read in any other history book. It tells about this unique fraternity of former presidents and how they work together to accomplish certain things. So provocative. But I would say that the one name that shows up in that book more than any other name who's a non-president, who never was a president of the U.S., would be the name of Billy Graham. Because starting with Truman, Billy Graham had a relationship with all of these presidents and was frequently invited into their homes and invited into the White House. And I've heard Graham describe his relationship with the presidents through the years, and he said that he probably spent more time 
with President Lyndon Johnson than anyone else. And the reason is because Johnson was terrified of dying. Terrified. I've met many people like that through the years. Hebrews 2.15 says that the fear of death keeps people in bondage. And one of the reasons we fear death so much is because we perceive that when we die, God's going to judge us by law. <clears throat> Virtually everyone I've had a conversation with who's not already a solid, victorious Christian believes what I'm describing here. They believe that God's keeping a list of all their good deeds and all their bad deeds, all the good they've done, all the bad they've done, and he's weighing them. And whenever they die, boy, that list of good things better be greater than the list of bad or they're doomed. And God's going to judge us that way. He's going to judge us based on law. And if you ask a person, hey, if you were to die, do you believe you'd go to heaven? They say, well, I hope so. And if you ask why, they say, because I've been a pretty good person. But they still are fearful of death because you never know where that cutoff line is. You know that although you've done some good things, you did many of those good things with selfish motives. And if we're being honest, all of us have broken just about every one of the Ten Commandments at one time or another. So how do you ever know, if that's your belief system, how do you ever know that you've done enough? And so you constantly fear death and judgment. Listen, this is a word that many of you need to hear. I'm amazed amazed at how pervasive this thinking is in our world, right here in the Capital District. And it keeps people in bondage where God wants us to be confident, free from fear, even in the face of death, and bold in our testimony for Christ. We go on here in verse 7, and Paul describes this New covenant versus the old. Now, this may sound a little confusing, but I'll try to bring some light on it after we read it. Now, if the ministry that brought death, that's a reference to the old covenant, a covenant that just resulted in death, which was engraved in letters on stone, that's a reference to Moses bringing the tablets down from Mount Sinai, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Now, the background of this is Exodus 34, where Moses comes down and his face is aglow with the glory of God as he delivers the Sinaitic covenant to the people. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, that's a reference to the new covenant of grace that we live under, be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, a reference to the old, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, a reference to the new covenant? So my question to you is, which covenant are you under? And even though many followers of Jesus or would-be followers of Jesus say, of course, I'm under the covenant of grace, we don't live like it. And so we still live in bondage to fear. I jotted down a few of the contrasts. You probably won't have time to write all these down, but maybe you can catch them later on the internet. The old covenant was received by Moses on Mount Sinai. The new covenant was delivered by Jesus on Mount Calvary. The old covenant brought a fading glory. The new covenant brings an increasing glory. The glow on Moses' face faded, 
But the glory of Christ in the real Christian continues to increase as we grow older. The old covenant demanded rigid perfection. The new covenant is based on the perfection of Christ. His perfection is adequate. That's the way we go to heaven. The old covenant brought condemnation and death because no one could keep it after all. But the new covenant brings forgiveness and righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ and the freedom of the Spirit. And finally, the old covenant relied on our works, the new covenant on God's grace. Leighton Ford used to tell the story about a man who died and stood before the gatekeeper of heaven. And the gatekeeper said, well, you need a thousand points in order to get entry here. What kind of good things have you done on earth? And the guy said rather pompously, well, I was a boy scout. And I was a good student in school, and I went to Sunday school just about every single week, thinking, oh, that's going to impress him. And the gatekeeper meticulously wrote all these things down, and he turned and said, okay, good. That's two points. You need 998 more points. What else? The guy gulped and said, well, I was uh, faithful to my wife, and, and I tried to be honest in business, and I, I taught my children to be people of integrity. Gatekeeper meticulously wrote it all down, said, wonderful, that's two more points. You need 996 points. What else have you done? And the guy's now in a panic, and he searches his mind for every good thing he's ever done. He says, well, I obeyed the, the, the traffic laws, and I, I, I didn't take those tags off the mattresses that weren't of, weren't of legal ramifications, and, and I recycled, and He's just scraping the bowl for anything he can think of. The gatekeeper wrote it all down and said, that's, that's really nice. That's two more points. You need 994 more points to get in. And finally, the man dejected said, I, I, I can't think of another single good thing that I've done. He said, I guess I'll just have to throw myself on the mercy of God. Good, said the gatekeeper. That's 994 points. You come on in. Now, I really like that story. But I want to be careful to point out the big problem with that illustration is that you can't wait till you die to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Amen. You got to do it now. Do you get it? When I see people who are just loaded down with trying to do their religious duty and be a good person and tick off all these boxes, I know one thing, they're living under the Old Testament law, trying to be good enough. They haven't yet, yet gotten the idea that it's trusting in Christ and His goodness and the grace that flows from the cross to us. What are you trusting in? Ephesians 2 says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, it takes humility to reach out and receive that gift of grace, just like a beggar receiving a gift from the hand of a king. I'll never forget about 18 years ago, my family and I had the privilege of, through some friends we had who had a wonderful home on Lake George, they invited us to spend a week there in their home on Lake George. It was amazing. 
Now, I know there are hundreds of great homes on that magnificent lake, but I want to tell you, really, theirs is one of the best. It's in a perfect spot, a little protected bay area, different docks there, and we had the usage of their boats and their jet skis and all their equipment. It was amazing. Oh, I'm telling you, the sights from their home, the huge windows, it was incredible, and we just felt swallowed up in this wonderful big warm house there on Lake George. It was one of the most unforgettable memories of our lives. And I want to tell you, although we felt a little weird about it, we mooched off of our friends for a whole week in their wonderful home. We just mooched off of them. And you know, it's kind of humbling when at the end of the week and you turn the keys to the house back over, it's kind of humbling to know that you could never have paid for this. And all you can do is just say thank you. Friend, you could never pay for your sin. The price is exorbitant. Can I tell you something? We are spiritual moochers. But when we trust in what Christ did for us at the cross, he paid it all, all to him we owe, and then we spend the rest of our lives simply saying, thank you, Lord. And we live in gratitude for the amazing gift of his grace. No wonder we can be bold. 2 Corinthians 3.12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. But as we quickly wrap this up, I want you to see one other truth that I believe is vital. Our confidence comes from concentrating on character, not on reputation for personal fulfillment. Character, not on reputation. Now follow me here. Paul uses Moses as the example, verse 13. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Now again, the background of this, and you can read it when you go home, is Exodus 34. Moses has had this close encounter with God. His empowering presence is all over him. His face, Moses' face literally glowed. And so he had to put a veil over it so the people didn't have to squint When they looked at him, but over time, that radiance began to fade, and Moses kept that veil on because who wants to follow a leader whose radiance is diminishing? He didn't want them to know. He was afraid of getting the reputation of being the leader with a shining face who wasn't so shiny anymore. The world's confidence is based on what people think of you. That's what Facebook is all about, isn't it? Have you ever met someone after seeing their Facebook page and after seeing all about them on Facebook or any other place like that, social media, and you you finally meet them and you go, oh my goodness, what a disconnect. What an anticlimax. Wow, the reputation, woo! I would have thought I was meeting a dynamo. This is that person? We live by reputation today. People try to manage their reputation. It's all about image management. Our society values the young, the beautiful, the vibrant, the cool. But the big problem with that is that it decreases. The marketability fades as you grow older. 
It's pathetic to think about some of the stars of Hollywood who used to be on the top of the world just five, ten years ago, and now you can hardly remember their name because the glory fades. One famous ex-CEO of a major Fortune 50 corporation in his early 60s, he retired, and he was asked how he liked retirement. He said, well, <laughs> I'm having a hard time with it because people don't return my phone calls anymore. And that's the way it is. The world's glory fades with age, and that's why we work so hard to put that veil on and get a reputation. Verse 14, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. He's changing it a little bit here and saying, look, there's a sort of blindness over people who have not seen this glorious covenant of grace yet, and it's not been revealed to them. Verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Have you ever seen that happen to somebody? Folks, I've been in Bible study for an entire year with a group of men, all of whom were living under the old covenant, all who grew up with religion, believing it's all about doing your duty and following the rules. They had no idea about the grace of Christ. And I've always been amazed how difficult it is to break through that veil. Even after a year of presenting the gospel over and over again, still there's often a blindness there that only the Lord can break through. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then verse 18 reads, and we'll close with this, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me end where I started. What is your boldness quotient? How bold, how confident are you as a follower of Jesus? This passage ends here in chapter 3 by reminding us that when we're in Christ, the good work he started in you, he's going to keep on doing. And you're going to be changed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. To put it more simply, you live not worrying so much about what people think. And you learn to live for an audience of one. Because you understand that the one who saved you, the one who died for you, the one who redeemed you, the one who gave you his grace, the one who got you off that treadmill of law and put you on the glorious road of freedom, which is God's grace, you know that his opinion and his alone is the one that really matters. My friends, that's quite a life, and I commend that life to you. That's where our boldness, that's where our confidence, that's where our competence comes from. And may that be your story. May that be your reality this very day. Father, thank you for the richness of your word. And although this passage is a little difficult at times to understand because it's so rooted in these Old Testament realities, I pray that you would turn the light on and help us to see clearly what freedom in Christ looks like today. And for those who are still on the old treadmill of law, Father, help them to see that there's a glorious road of freedom that you're calling them to as they learn to trust 
in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.